Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, uh, Nathaniel asks an unwittingly evangelistic question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I'd like to speak tonight about the Nazareth principle, uh, the Nazareth principle. And the principle uh, could basically be summarized in this way, God defies our expectations. When we're really dealing with God, he will almost always defy our expectations, either <clears throat> exceeding them or going against the grain of them. But he will, in fact, defy our expectations. This is seen very clearly in the early ministry of Jesus, in which his hometown was derided and criticized. Uh, <clears throat> there is a very famous Anglican uh, bishop who uh, is a New Testament scholar and was a university chaplain who used to interview all the freshmen of Cambridge University uh, and introduce himself to them as the chaplain. And he would hear the same thing time and time again from the British and international students, which went something like this. I'm very grateful that you reached out to me, but you won't be seeing me in chapel because, you see, I don't believe in God. Tom Wright looked at them and asked, well, can you tell me what God don't you believe in? And some of them would answer something like this, well, I don't believe in some sort of unmoved mover, some creator deity who is a, an occasional interventionist bursting into history to do a few things, but leaving us alone for the most part, answering our prayers if we pray the way, right way or give enough money, sending really good people to heaven and roasting the rest of us in hell. And Tom Wright didn't miss a beat. He looked right back at them and said, well, I'm relieved to know that you don't believe in that kind of God. I don't believe in that kind of God either. I believe in the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ, and he's very different from the one you're talking about. A God that defies our expectations. And we see that in Jesus, this Jesus who, uh, in this particular chapter, just recently retired from his job as a private contractor and goes public and uh, carries with him everywhere he goes a certain magnetism, and lots of people are deeply charmed by him. Uh, charmed because he was so unpredictable. He was always on the move, and yet unusually stable. Uh, he didn't have to be liked by anybody, and yet he was liked by many people. Uh, he uh, was at times very offensive, and at other times extremely consoling. He was a wild man, and he was always doing the unexpected and, if you will, revealing an unexpected deity. And so uh, the Nazareth principle is something that I really want to consider with you tonight. I want to see the Nazareth principle as it manifests itself in the hick town, under the fig tree, and on the escalator. Uh, so let's move through this text together as we consider first the hick town. I realize that language is offensive, but you'll live. Okay, context. <laughs> this is verse 43. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. 
Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. I'm going to stop there just for a second to say we begin to see the evangelistic dynamic grow from this place. Notice Jesus is the one who's pursuing his disciples. These are not random people pursuing Jesus so much. He's reversing the trend and the practice of most rabbis in that day who would only accept the best students, the cream of the crop. Here, Jesus is the one scouring the land for people of his own choosing, and he alone knows the reasoning for that. But he searches after Philip and asks Philip to follow me. And Philip is so moved by this experience that he instinctively says, I have to reach out and tell other people about this man. And so we see the germination or the contagion spreading right, of this gospel love that was present in Jesus of Nazareth as it affected the chosen man, Philip. And now he seeks other people uh, on Jesus's behalf. And so we see this evangelistic um, uh, organic growth of the church, even from the earliest days. Um, but uh, he runs into a man, that is, Philip runs into a Nathaniel who, who objects to Jesus's background. And this is what it says in verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Now, you're dealing here with two men. One of them is highly convinced, and the other is not at all convinced. The highly convinced man believes that Jesus is not only a good man, not only a prophet, not only a shaman, not only uh, somebody of deep spiritual worth and value, but that this is the answer that we have been promised. So he, he is explaining to Nathaniel and to probably anybody who would listen, do you remember all the old stories? and all the old vows and promises and urges from our great history, they've all come true today. They've all come true in this man who used to be a contractor. I mean, it's wild, right? And Nathaniel is understandably a little bit skeptical, especially when he hears about the hometown of this particular man. Uh, Nathaniel was not impressed, and he doesn't hold back. He mutters pejoratively about Nazareth. And it's not because Nazareth is especially wicked. You know, it's not Las Vegas. It's not Amsterdam. Instead, it's just boring. It's dull. It's unremarkable. It's not famous. It's not interesting. It's not even uh, connected, at least not immediately. We talked about the, the roots of the word Nazareth having messianic connotations, but most people didn't think of Nazareth as, an, as a prominent place with messianic orientations. It wasn't Jerusalem. Jerusalem, it's not Rome. It's not Cairo. It's not Tokyo. It's not Berlin. It's not D.C. It's not New York City. In fact, it was a town so small that the Romans didn't even bother taxing it. And if the government doesn't have any interest in your money, you know you don't matter that much, right? Uh, and so what is the principle here? What is the principle uh, that was grasped by Philip but not yet by Nathaniel? Well, it's something that Luther rightly labeled the theology of the cross. The theology of the cross says that God, in God's core, is best expressed in the place where you would least expect to see him. And so you don't look at gilded palaces, and you don't look for marble staircases, and you don't look for beautiful statuary. Instead, you look at places of great humiliation and pain, and you say to yourself, I, I bet that's where God is. 
God is at the cross. God is at the place where it looks like God has abandoned someone. God is right there in places like Nazareth. So Jesus, yes, he grows up in a hick town. He's surrounded by rubes all his life. And yet, Philip has the spirit-given wisdom to see that that is where God is found. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, come and see, and I'll show you something. Now, there's a man who discovered a similar truth, and his name was Augustine. He was a 5th century African bishop, uh, but before he was a bishop, he was complicated, and uh, he was in a cult, and he really liked women a lot. I mean, a lot, and they liked him too, uh, and, and they liked him especially because he was savvy and intellectual. I mean, he was sort of a, a, a hipster scholar who was good-looking and, um, and came from a wealthy patrician family, and that was appealing to the ladies, and... Uh, and he, from his intellectual place of superiority, started to critique various religions and their intellectual ineptitude. And one of those religions was Christianity. He writes about this. Originally, after studying Christianity and hearing about Christianity from his mother and other respected sources, he was thoroughly unimpressed. And he uh, then went on to read the Bible to see if the Bible would impress him more than his uh, theological contemporaries, and it didn't. And he concludes that the Bible uh, is a clumsy, lackluster library of books filled with bad grammar and insufficient story structure. That's what he says. He's not impressed at all. Uh, and yet he discovers later in his life a topsy-turvy truth that, of course, and Calvin said this too. Calvin said that if God is to speak to humanity, he must lisp. God must humiliate himself, humble himself to speak through the stories, the accents, the words, the, uh, the, the formularies of human beings. That's what inspiration is. Inspiration says, I'm going to come to you and speak in your dialect so you understand something higher than your dialect. And that's what Augustine eventually realized. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's what he writes. He said, that's what Christmas is all about. Ultimate power echoing through the uncouth accents and working class gestures of Jesus of Nazareth and of the scriptures that were written about him. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, Philip invites us, come and see. Come and see beauty that can arise from a hick town. Okay, point two, the fig tree. This is wild. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you were the son of God. You were the king of Israel. Stop there. It's a bit humorous. Uh, first, Jesus compliments Nathanael's character. Nathanael then is wondering how Jesus can be so perceptive. How do you know me? And then Jesus says, yes, you were under the tree. And then Nathanael exclaims, you're it. Philip was right. You are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Nathanael's reaction is a bit much, right? I mean, it seems very strange to me. Um, in fact, his words, his extreme change of heart, causes many readers to conclude, understandably, that Jesus must have been referring to something more than, oh yeah, you're that guy I saw 20 yards away like, drinking a smoothie underneath a tree. Right? I mean, if I said to Eric Potter, like sometime tomorrow, I remember seeing you last night, you were in the sixth pew, he would probably not respond, 
Ethan, you are the son of God, the king of America. And if he did, we would, we would um, medicate him, and rightfully so. Um, but here's the wild truth of Scripture. And what I love about the wildness of Scripture, we have no idea why Jesus is saying about this fig tree and Nathaniel's presence under it created such a change of heart in Nathaniel, but it did. It touched a nerve. And some have speculated that Jesus tapped into some private occurrence between Nathaniel and God that at one point happened under a fig tree. Now, people say that because fig trees were mostly garden plants because people consumed figs, and they were grown in people's gardens, and uh, in the day when the sun was beating down on somebody's house, sometimes people uh, would go outside to spend time in their gardens and sit under fig trees and talk amongst their friends about Torah or study the Torah. And so it became, and the rabbis write about this, a place of study and prayer. And so perhaps, we don't know, speculation, perhaps Nathaniel had some uh, encounter, some encounter that was deeply private but very moving to him, and then Jesus calls it out and says, I saw you. That day when you thought it was just you and God, that was me too. I saw you underneath the fig tree. Well, Whatever occurred, this is the point. Jesus knew Nathaniel before Nathaniel knew Jesus. And when Nathaniel discovered that sacred awareness that he was seen, that he was known, it did something to him. It altered something very deep in his core, and he was never the same after that moment. And I, I want to notice the surprise of this Nazarene God who ambushes people in gardens. I really like that. I, I like the thought of God's unpredictability. You know, sometimes we look at uh, our friends and our family, those who think that we're ridiculous for being here tonight, or those who claim that they used to have a faith, but it's gone, or, or they have real questions or doubts, and all that's, it is what it is. But, you know, we, we cannot predict and ought not try how God might intersect with that person but it will probably be a surprise because that's almost always how God works. He doesn't go by our Google calendars. Instead, he just shows up in gardens, in Nazarene rabbis, uh, in life, in its unpredictable moments. God just appears and squares with us. Augustine experienced this. He had his own fig tree uh, experience. So... In the midst of his spiritual speculation, uh, Augustine uh, was in his backyard uh, and was hearing neighborhood children playing next door. Uh, evidently, they were uh, tossing around a novel between them, and they kept in a very loud voice saying, take the book and read it. Take up and read, take up and read. And Augustine found himself near a copy of the New Testament, and particularly Paul's letter to the Romans, and he somehow had the sense in that moment that the children's voices and God's voice were melding into one voice, and he ought to listen to this sacred game that the children were playing. So he opens up the scroll to the place in Romans 13 where Paul writes these words, let us walk decently as in the daytime, not in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And that, that 
was the insight that burrowed through the Berlin Wall, which encased the heart of Augustine. And that passage, because of that little childish game next door, is the thing that gave him light in the darkness that changed his whole world. And we still refer to him today and are moved by him today and affected by him today because of that voice, because of what was said to him, because of his own fig tree experience. And so Nathaniel begins by mocking Jesus and his home turf, but ends because of this revelation by calling Jesus the king of Israel. Now I want you to notice a few verses earlier, Jesus said of Nathanael, you are an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And now just a few minutes later after the revelation, he is essentially saying, I am an Israelite and you are the king of Israel, meaning you're my king. Philip was right. Over to you. Uh, And so essentially Philip extends to him and to us an invitation. Come and see. Come and see a Christ who ambushes people anywhere, even under a fig tree or later on under a tree drenched in blood. But also we see the Nazarene God at the escalator. The escalator. This is what uh, verse 50 says. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is here referencing an ancient and well-known image. It comes from Genesis 28, and it was a visionary experience that Jacob, the patriarch, the sort of wily patriarch, who was eventually renamed Israel, uh, had. Uh, He was in a place that was eventually named Bethel, which meant house of God. And he was laying his head down on a rock because they didn't have pillows, evidently. And he was laying his head down on a rock and he had uh, a vision of a ladder that stretched from earth to heaven. And angels uh, were ascending and descending on that ladder. And so what he was envisioning is that God is very interactive with the earth. And there is this mediating device between heaven and earth that connects the two planes. So the two planes are not the same, but they are connected. And that's why Jacob eventually names this place Bethel, or house of God, because he thought that this was a sacred place where people could have an encounter. That was the theology behind the temple in Judaism, that you could have an encounter with Yahweh, that it was a, it was a closer place there. You could really reach God and he could reach you, that it was a a structure, a ladder, an escalator into the heavens. Well, what Jesus is saying here is something remarkable. And it's that Bethel isn't really the ladder. Not really. Instead, he's, he's saying, I, the Nazarene day laborer, the one that you found so dismissible, I am the go between. I am the ladder, I am the escalator, I am the gate, I am the tear and the veil, I am the thin place, I am the temple, I am the unsmudged window through which you see the face of God. If you want a mediator that is going to connect the realms, if you want your ladder, if you want your way, well, I am that way, I am that ladder, I am that escalator, and there is no other. So we really do believe that not only is Jesus uniquely a God-man, and nobody else is, And not only uniquely the Messiah, and nobody else is, we also believe that he is the only way people are reconciled with heaven. 
because he is the mediator. This is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And he is the mediator because he combines both worlds, the earthly and the heavenly, uh, bringing them together in perfect harmony as the truest person who has ever lived and dies for all of those who live in falsehood. That is you and me. And so he himself is the escalator, and he is telling Nathaniel and Philip that there is a way. There is a way of reattachment, of rebonding, and it's through what I have to offer. Yeah. Well, friends, that's the Nazareth principle in this passage, that we see the incarnate God coming to us in ways that defy our expectations in the hick town at the fig tree, and on the escalator. And I'd like to close now with some thoughts about how the Nazareth principle might affect how we think about our Messiah, our messengers, and our methods. We have an unexpected Messiah. You know, we have a message about a Christ who was a hated man. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Or to quote Isaiah, he was a man from whom we hid our faces because we didn't want to see him. Uh, we didn't want to hear him. We would rather him die than listen to what he had to say and be confronted by him and even saved by him. You know, it's funny. I, I keep reading, especially after the, the wildness of the last uh, few weeks, a lot of online criticism about Christians, and it's, it goes something like this in summary. You Christians are so unlike your Christ. If you Christians were nicer, like Jesus, I might give an ear to what you say. I'm like, huh. After about two seconds of reflection, I remember, wait a minute, didn't we all kill Christ? Like, we killed him. Because we didn't want to hear what he had to say. And arguably, there was nobody more Christ-like than Christ. And we said no to him. Right? So I don't know what world these uh, critics are living in. Um, our Nazarene was and will continue to be frequently rejected. Notice even the name of his hick town was nailed into the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This man from this peasant town offered too much truth, which unsettled the world, and too much grace, which unsettled it, unsettled it even more. And are we comfortable hearing the shrill no of the world? Or do we long, even lust for the yes, the permission, the smile of ever-fading society? Well, if they said no to Christ, they'll probably at some point say no to you. And are you willing to handle that? Am I willing to handle that? Because it's coming. And not to offer too much of a dark prophecy, but I think it's coming closer. I think those realities are more present now. Just a thought. But So we have an unexpected Messiah that doesn't really fit with the zeitgeist, with the world as it's currently constituted. And more than that, we have unexpected messengers who are possessed by this Nazarene spirit. You know, one of the first nasty labels that the world gave to Christians was the Nazarenes. That's what they called us. One of the first slights against Christians. What were they saying by that label? That we were pathetic weaklings who follow a pathetic weakling. Unideal disciples of an unideal Messiah, at least from the world's perspective. And if we are called that, I don't think we should push back. I think we should own it. 
They want to call us weak. They want to call us doormats. They want to call us Nazarenes, as it were, people who come from weakness. Well, Paul said the same thing. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Consider your calling, brethren and sistren. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Friends, lead with your weakness. If you want to evangelize, if you want to be that person, you don't need to have everything figured out and fixed. If you wait till that's completed, you'll never tell anybody about Jesus. Instead, lead with your weakness. You know, I agree that, um, you know, it's important for Christians to carry the quality and character of Christ. But I have to say that we as the messengers of the gospel are not the magnetism of the gospel. I don't know about you, but so many times when I think about my encounters with people who are outside the fold, I tend to think, I tend to think um, that we are, um, if I can put it this way, that our lifestyle, our eloquence, our niceness, our politics, our likability are all the things that draw people to Jesus or repel people from Jesus if we're not that way. Do you know what? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, so I'm now beginning to see, in fact, that I am not the linchpin of the gospel's success. Can you believe that? I, I know. I'm going to therapy. I'm not, but I, I haven't, yeah, I'm not that guy. And you're not that person either. Um, instead, uh, you know, I've realized that the goal is not to say, come and see me or come and see us. It's come and see him, come and see Jesus. In other words, people need to see us not as Jesus experts, but as people who need Jesus, just like they do. And so Jesus is the great equalizer of men and women because what we need as Christians it's the same thing that the non-Christian needs, which is redeeming love that vivifies and resurrects. Yeah. So that's the unexpected messengers bit. We don't fit with the world either. And they're going to say that you're weak. Who cares? Everybody is. That's the life. We are all Nazarenes in that way. Yeah. Okay, lastly, unexpected methods. We as Nazarenes adopt the methods of our Christ. That is humility, candor, and compassion. We do not believe in, nor do we invest in spectacle, showmanship, and self-oriented power displays. Okay, fun story. So one time, years ago, I w went to a church planting conference in Orlando, Florida. Complete waste of time, because I didn't even get to go to Disney World. However, um, I did go to this church planning conference, and it was very hot outside and way too cold on the inside of this sanctuary. And you know, you've been to Florida, you understand. So anyway, so during the whole enterprise within this sanctuary space, there was an upside-down roller coaster track in the sanctuary with roller coaster cars on it, and they were stable, stationary, and people that looked very excited, dummies, of course, you know, they were on the roller coaster upside down because that has a lot to do with church planning. And so, um, and so the, then there was a great, uh, I say great in, in big air quotes, great worship song that came, uh, that, that came through the system because I think the band, I don't think they were really playing anything. Um, and it was called I Have a Destiny. So it was 
I don't think it was about God, but, um, but we had a destiny, I guess. And when that song started rocking, the roller coaster started moving around the track. And then the people who were in the roller coaster started falling out of the roller coaster, but they were on bungee cords, like all roller coasters have. And, but the problem is that the bungee cords, some of them got wrapped around the necks of the dummies. So it looks like they were all hanging to death as they were spinning around the room and the roller coaster. Okay, that is stupid. That's ridiculous. Why does such a thing exist? Oh, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has understood. I can't yet comprehend why that happened. But the point is, what did they think? What were they thinking if they were thinking that spectacle would seal the deal? And that is ridiculous. That is not Christian, friends. That is not, that is not Christian. Our methods must be as unpretentious as our Nazarene Christ. And therefore, within a world which is drunk on spectacle, we will do the unexpected. Godly normalcy. How about that? That's wild. That's revolutionary. What do I mean? Well, we as Christians, we have a public society. What do I mean? Um, we invite people to a public worship service, not a private cult that you need a password for. We pray, but we don't pray boastfully or to garner attention. We show warm hospitality to people, whether they convert or whether they don't. We create art and poetry in order to beautify God's world and invite others to consider deep truths from God. We love wastefully, and we befriend derelicts. This is what we do, and we speak of a Christ who loves misshapen sinners just like us. That is our task. We are Nazarenes following the man from Nazareth. And as Nathaniel came to discover, many good things can come from Nazareth, and you are among them. So come and see. Amen. We at last, they took your life. They could not.